So the book we're talking about today is Lord Mansfield, Justice in the Age of Reason. Can you tell us very briefly about Lord Mansfield and what led you to write about him? Amazing as it may seem, um, the uh, students, uh, law students, read some of Lord Mansfield's cases that were decided 250 years ago. Um, I, I taught contract law, and Lord Mansfield, uh, a, a, some cases decided by him uh, were in the case book, uh, which I taught, and I was enormously impressed by the clarity, uh, the pragmatism, of Lord Mansfield. It was kind of like reading a case of today. It was uh, tremendously impressive. Uh, he wrote with total clarity and, needless to say, with a huge amount of uh, uh, brain power. And so when I, when I, before I retired, or when I decided to retire, I wasn't really thinking about Lord Mansfield, except that in 2007, I was on a vacation in Scotland and uh, we found ourselves at uh, a place called Schoolroom Palace, which is where Lord Mansfield was born. It's one of the great homes in England where the uh, public is allowed in. And uh, there on the wall, I saw this uh, painting by Sir Joshua Reynolds of Mansfield. And I sort of got, started getting interested in, in him. I thought about him before and uh, discovered that, number one, I wanted to retire. And, but to do something. And number two, uh, there's really no modern biography of Lord Mansfield. So I set to work doing it and took about six, seven years. Lord Mansfield was practicing in the latter half of the 18th century. What does he have to teach lawyers of today in America? Well, first of all, Lord Mansfield uh, has influenced American law a great deal. Uh, our Supreme Court has cited him uh, 330, uh, over 330 times. Uh, fairly recently, uh, in a case involving a prisoner at, at Guantanamo Bay, a, it was actually two different cases, where uh, the question was, um, does the writ of habeas corpus apply outside the sovereignty of the United States, uh, even to a place where the United States has practical control, but not not sovereignty. It's on a leasehold from Cuba. And um, uh, the court actually turned back to Lord Mansfield and in a, in a case where he said exactly that, that something was written in that case, that a, um, a person uh, under the control of, a, of the government, uh, or a person in a place under control of the government, uh, has the right to uh, to bring a, a writ of habeas corpus, even though it's not within the sovereignty of the of the country. It's interesting that you bring up his uh, habeas corpus rulings, considering the ABA is actually, and other places, are celebrating um, the upcoming 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. Um, you refer into, in the book to the Anglo-American system of law. Where do you find the... Uh, majority of British influence in American law to be? Well, uh, you know, the states of the United States um, adopted English common law when when U.S. became independent. So uh, all of our uh, common law is essentially based on, uh, based on English law. 
and uh, um, Lord Mansfield uh, was um, uh, a tremendously influential in uh, English law. As a matter of fact, uh, Je- Thomas Jefferson, uh, when when we got our independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson didn't want any English cases uh, from the time Mansfield became uh, uh, went on the bench to be adopted by American law. He didn't like Lord Mansfield. He felt he was undemocratic. And also that he, Lord Mansfield, when a question couldn't be answered by uh, English precedent, he would look to uh, the law, uh, civil law of um, continental Europe. And Jefferson felt that he couldn't mix the two laws. But of course, Jefferson didn't prevail. Uh, Marshall and Adams uh, and Justice Story, all of them, revered Lord Mansfield. Well, with Thomas Jefferson, that might have been a little personal as well, because as you say in the book, he stridently opposed uh, the American revolutionaries in the Revolutionary War. Is that correct? Exactly. Yes, that's true. But on the other hand, other patriots, such as John Adams uh, and and, uh, uh, John Marshall, uh, were also uh, patriots, but they they felt quite differently about about Mansfield. Same with uh, Hamilton. You have a nice little anecdote in the book about how, I believe it was John Adams came to visit uh, London and oh, yeah. Mansfield, despite the fact that uh, he had worked against uh, the Americans achieving you know, their own nation, went so far as to uh, vouch for him in some way. Is that right? Well, what happened was that it was a big ceremony uh, at the House of Lords when uh, the uh, the um, Prince of Wales came of age. That was a, he became George the Fourth uh, much later, uh, and um, uh, Adams, who kind of uh, uh, kind of had a soft spot in his heart for uh, the ceremonies of, the, of British royalty and nobility, um, he asked um, the painter uh, John Singleton Copley if Copley who had painted a wonderful portrait of Mansfield which is actually on the cover of my of my book um, he asked uh, Copley if he could speak to Mansfield to see if he could get into the, the, the House of Lords on that day and uh, see the ceremony and so when he appeared the uh, person who was in charge the head usher uh, with a big, a big staff tapped the floor and said, uh, make way for Mr. Adams, Lord Mansfield's friend. And of course, Matt Adams loved it. Let's talk about the Somerset decision. Many people now are pointing to this as one of the first major abolitionist decisions. Uh, but it doesn't seem that perhaps Mansfield meant it to go as far as it did. What are your thoughts on that? Could you tell us a little bit about the background of the case and, and how he came to make his decision? Well, yes, yes. The, the background of the case was that um, Somerset, James Somerset, was a slave. Uh, his uh, owner had brought him to England uh, from uh, Boston, actually, and um, uh, Somerset escaped. He was recaptured and uh, put on a ship in chains to be taken to Jamaica to be sold as a slave. Uh, his his former master didn't want didn't want him anymore, and um, uh, abolitionists learned of it. And abolitionists in England learned of it and uh, got rid of habeas corpus from Mansfield. 
uh, Mansfield was uh, uh, somewhat of two minds about this. In fact, he, he, he was very reluctant to decide the case because the, uh, uh, it, it was felt or that, this, that, that abolition uh, would be very negative for English commerce. Britain, Britain at that time dominated the slave trade completely. And uh, so uh, he tried to get the parties to settle, and uh, he tried to, he postponed it. Uh, and when he did decide the case, he tried to uh, make the decision as narrow as he could. And he, he later explained that uh, all, he, all he decided was that, uh, that under English law, uh, they you couldn't um, uh, force a a person, in this case a slave, to leave the country against his will. But people, under, it, it, that doesn't make a lot of sense because he did free the slave. He said the the black must be discharged, and in such he said that such an odious institution as slavery could only be supported by positive law. And I, what he meant by that was that if Parliament had uh, legalized slavery uh, in England, I suppose he would have said, well, that's, that's the law. But uh, Parliament never had done that. The, the, slave, the, the West Indian slave owners and plantation uh, owners had uh, wanted to, uh, to try to get Parliament to adopt a law, but that, that, never, that didn't happen. And so... Um, this was an interesting case because even though slavery did last for another 60 years in England after the 1772 Somerset case, um, the case sort of gathered importance as time went by. And in, in America, too, uh, the, the abolitionists in, in Massachusetts uh, were greatly encouraged by the... By the um, uh, Somerset decision, and at the same time, the southern the southern uh, slave owners uh, may be, and this is a debatable point, but it may be that they were they were encouraged. It, it added to their wish to get to get independence from England because of the Somerset case. Although although Mansfield made it very clear in his opinion that he was not doing anything that would interfere with the slave trade. So it's a kind of a, a mixed bag, that case. One way that family law is influenced in America by directly by Lord Mansfield is the Lord Mansfield rule, and this actually comes up uh, quite a bit. Can you tell us about the Lord Mansfield rule? Yes. Well, the man, the, the, actually, there have been other other rules that have been called the Lord Mansfield rule because he was, you know, as I said, influential in, in other areas too. But the, the, what, what you're referring, the Mansfield rule that you're referring to, uh, he, Mansfield said that uh, the testimony of a husband or wife is not admissible to challenge the legitimacy of a child of the wife. Uh, in those days, the um, uh, there was a much greater taint of illegitimacy than there is today, and uh, m m many American states. I, I mentioned the state of Nebraska because that was just, uh, I think, in 2012 
um, they uh, rejected the Mansfield rule uh, on on that ground and also on the ground that today you have DNA evidence, uh, which, of course, you didn't have in Mansfield's uh, day. But the interesting thing to me is that um, the court found it necessary to really explain why they were rejecting this uh, this rule, uh, which was at least 250 years old. Well, Professor Posey, thank you so much for talking to us today. I really appreciate it. And anyone who wants more biographical details about Lord Mansfield can go to the article on our site, or even better, go to the book, Lord Mansfield, Justice in the Age of Reason, by Norman S. Poser. Thanks so much. This podcast was brought to you by the ABA Journal. For more podcasts on the legal issues of the day, visit us online at abajournal.com or subscribe for free to the ABA Journal podcast on iTunes.